This is Ethan Siegel, and welcome back to the Starts With a Bang podcast. Back in the early stages of astronomy, galaxies were a rare thing. They were these faint, fuzzy smudges on the sky, sometimes coming in spirals, other times in ellipticals, but always seeming to be randomly distributed. As time has gone on and astronomy has improved, we've gone from thinking there were dozens of these to hundreds to thousands, and now at the point where we recognize there are hundreds of billions of galaxies in the universe, relatively evenly distributed in all directions and relatively equally at all distances as well once you take the expansion of the universe into account. Taking the expansion of the universe into account is just one way that we account for the passage of time in the universe. Because when you look back at a more and more distant galaxy, you're also looking farther back in time. A galaxy that's a million light years away is a million years ago in terms of the light reaching our eyes. And as you look even further back to tens, hundreds of millions, or even billions of light years, you're also looking farther and farther back in time. As you start going back closer to the Big Bang, closer to the origin of matter and energy in our universe, what you start to see is that galaxies in the past are different from the galaxies that exist today. They tend to be smaller, both in size and in mass. They tend to have fewer stars, and they tend to have younger stars populating them. In other words, as you look closer and closer back to the Big Bang, you're seeing galaxies in an earlier, less evolved state. In principle, you think that you could go all the way back to the Big Bang, all the way back to a time before any galaxies had formed, and in fact to a time before even the very first star in the universe had formed. This would be back in the dark ages of the universe, where it had gotten cool enough for neutral atoms to form, but hadn't yet had enough time to pass for gravitational collapse to build up dense enough regions that would give you the stars and galaxies that we know exist today. Yet we can't see all the way back to these very first stars or these very first galaxies. There are two big problems that prevent us from doing so. One is the further back in space you look, the more intervening matter there is between our perspective and these distant galaxies we're looking at. And just as when you look at our galaxy in the night sky, you can't see the entirety of all the stars and nebulae that are there because we have intervening matter, because we have galactic dust in the form of neutral atoms that block the light, well, the further back in space you look and the farther back in time you look, there's neutral matter in between us and the most distant galaxies are there, and they block the visible light coming from it too. And the second problem that prevents us from going all the way arbitrarily back is that the light itself gets redshifted. As the universe expands and the light travels through it from these distant galaxies 
all the way eventually to the Milky Way and to Earth, the space in between that distant galaxy and ourselves is expanding. And as that space expands, as the fabric of the universe stretches, that wavelength of the light, and remember, wavelength is the part of light that defines what its energy is, what its frequency is, and how we perceive it, that wavelength gets stretched as well. The more distant a galaxy is in the universe, the greater its light will get redshifted. So the farther back you look, not only is more and more of that light getting blocked by any intervening neutral matter, but also that light gets stretched so that the most distant galaxies, when we look at their ultraviolet light, it not only gets shifted into the visible part of the spectrum, it gets shifted out of the visible part of the spectrum again and all the way into the infrared, making it impossible for us with our naked eyes or even with optical telescopes to see it. The best tool at astronomers' disposal today for detecting the most distant galaxies is the Hubble Space Telescope. High above the Earth's atmosphere, it no longer has to contend with things like atmospheric turbulence, clouds, thermal variations, or inaccuracies in seeing. In addition, being in space, it no longer has to deal with atmospheric absorption, which occurs at a variety of different wavelengths of light. So Hubble can see light all the way from the very near ultraviolet, smaller wavelengths than the human eye can perceive, far into the near-infrared. In other words, it can see out to about 1,600 nanometers, or more than double the longest wavelengths that the human eye can see. This is fantastic, and this has been used traditionally to see the most distant galaxies that we've ever seen in the universe. But there's a limit. There's a limit to what Hubble can do. The reason for this is even light that's emitted at the ultraviolet wavelengths, even light that's emitted from the strongest transition in hydrogen atoms, the most common element in the universe, comes out at only around 120 nanometers, comes out less than a third of what the human eye can see. And yet, the farther and farther you go in the universe, the longer that light has to travel, and the more and more it gets redshifted, the longer a wavelength that light will become. So what happens when you go to greater and greater distances, out to tens of billions of light years, that light gets shifted all the way to the limits of what Hubble can possibly detect. Additionally, finding a galaxy isn't enough. You can't just observe something with the light you can see and say, this galaxy appears this red and therefore it must be this distant. You need to confirm it spectroscopically. That means you need to break up the light you see into all the individual wavelengths. You need to find the emission or absorption lines that are characteristic of it that will tell you exactly what redshift and therefore at what distance this galaxy is. And that's something that's traditionally done with ground based follow-ups from some of the largest telescopes like Keck here on Earth. Yet some galaxies that we look for are so far away that ground-based observation won't be able to detect them because the light will be shifted so far into the infrared that our atmosphere will prevent any spectroscopic follow-up from the ground. 
Previously, the universe's most distant galaxy was known as EGS 8P7, whose light was redshifted by an extra factor of 8.63 before it reached our eyes. This tells us that that light must have come from 13.24 billion years ago when the universe was just 573 million years old, or only 4% of its current age. But that record, as of last month, has just been shattered. The Hubble Space Telescope not only found and identified this galaxy, but did its own follow-up spectroscopy, being one of the only observatories capable of doing that from its location above the Earth's atmosphere in space. This new record holder has had its light redshifted by a whopping factor of 11.1, meaning the light is even older. It was emitted 13.40 billion years ago, at a time when the universe was only 407 million years old, or closer in time to the Big Bang than any other galaxy ever seen before. This galaxy, GN-Z11, came from a time when the universe was only 3% of its current age. You have to be not only extremely skilled, as Hubble is and the teams that observe with it are, but also extremely lucky to see a galaxy this far back in time. The skill part is due to the scientists and engineers who built, installed, and upgraded all the equipment that's on Hubble. This is really at the limits of what Hubble can see. The strongest line that hydrogen atoms emit, and hydrogen, remember, is over 90% of what the universe is made of. The strongest line hydrogen emits is called the Lyman-alpha line. It's the transition from the second lowest to the lowest energy state in hydrogen atoms. When you form new stars, they're hot, they're bright, they're blue, and what they do is they ionize all the hydrogen atoms around them. As the universe cools from that, as these electrons find the atoms they've been ionized from, they step down in energy. And as they take that last step from the second lowest energy level to the lowest energy level, that's the strongest emission line that we see, the Lyman-alpha line at 121 nanometers. Well, that line gets redshifted by the expanding universe to whatever redshift it's at, thanks to the distance of the galaxy. Hubble can see out to just over a redshift of 11, just under a redshift of 12 at maximum. This is really at the limit of what Hubble could conceivably have observed, and we were serendipitous enough to find it at this point in time. But this also took a fair amount of luck. Most of the universe at these great distances is full of neutral matter because it's never been exposed to stars capable of ionizing with their intense ultraviolet radiation the intergalactic medium. In order for the universe to become transparent to the ultraviolet and visible wavelengths of light, the light that's passing through space, it needs to be ionized. This intergalactic medium needs to be ionized as neutral atoms, just as our galaxy's dust blocks the light trying to reach us, these neutral atoms will block the light trying to travel through the universe. Most locations in space, most regions that we look at at these high redshifts, at these early times, they're dense. 
They're filled with neutral gas and dust, and visible light and ultraviolet light can't travel through it. So in order to be able to see this galaxy, in order to be able to see GN-Z11, we had to serendipitously be looking at a region of space that happens to be mostly ionized. It was this combination of skill and also of luck that enabled us to find this new cosmic distance holder. In theory, though, this shouldn't be the first. This shouldn't be the oldest galaxy. It's not really a surprise to find a galaxy like this one that contains perhaps a billion stars this early in the universe. Because in theory, when the universe first forms neutral atoms, when it's around 380,000 years old... It has a long way to go. It has a lot of gravitational collapse to do in order to form stars and galaxies. But it has a lot of time as well. By time 50 to 100 million years go by, we have the first stars in the universe, at least according to our current theories of structure formation. And by time 200 million years go by, these star clusters have merged together to form the first galaxies. This one that we found at 407 million years of age... This is an old galaxy, to be sure. This is one of the first galaxies in the universe. But there's no reason to think this is the very first. We should be able to find galaxies, if we have the right equipment, even further back than this one. But to do it, Hubble is not the right tool. We're pretty much limited by this galaxy and other galaxies, if we're lucky, like it, in the technology and the techniques we have with the Hubble Space Telescope. To go to deeper redshifts, to go to greater distances, and to go to earlier times, we need the James Webb Space Telescope. We need to go into space with a bigger diameter telescope that can see not just into the near infrared, but into the mid-infrared as well to see to much longer wavelengths. And that's exactly what the James Webb Space Telescope is designed to do. Whereas the Hubble Space Telescope can see to a maximum wavelength of about 1.6 microns, the James Webb Space Telescope is designed to see out to an incredible sensitivity to about 10 microns and to an also good, even though it's not quite as good as it is at 10, out to 30 microns. So we're talking about an extra factor of anywhere, depending on how you look at it, of 6 to maybe 30 over what the Hubble Space Telescope can do in terms of wavelength and in terms of redshift. So the key is not just to look in the infrared, it's to look at the right wavelengths in the infrared, to look at the wavelengths where light that's produced in the infrared from these early galaxies will naturally pass through the neutral matter and where we can still detect it as long as we have sufficient light-gathering power, which the Webb Telescope should give us. You might think it's amazing that a galaxy so massive existed only two to three hundred million years after the very first stars began to form. That would take some really fast growth and the production of stars, at least in some places, at a huge rate. But what this teaches us is that the Webb Telescope, if it opens and operates as planned in 2018, it will surely find many galaxies like this, young, hot, 
bright galaxies reaching back to when the very first galaxies were forming at a redshift of not only 11 or 12, but probably up to 15, 20, or possibly even beyond. And if we can see even further back to the very first stars, we may be able to push the limits back to when the very first stars formed to a redshift of 30, 40, or even 50. If, as expected, the very first galaxies in the universe form, that means we should be able to see galaxies back at a redshift of anywhere between about 16 and 22. So this is a tremendous possibility, and the science of finding this out is right on the horizon just two or three years from now when the Webb telescope is unfolded complete and operational in space. We have every reason to be optimistic about the future of uncovering the first stars and galaxies in the universe and pushing the limits back and pushing the frontiers back, not only as far as we can, but as far as the universe allows us to go. This podcast is possible thanks to the support of our patrons, and I'd like to thank our Patreon supporters, Bakhtiar, Robert J. Hansen, Thomas Sola, Denier, Igor Mitrofanov, Nick Tomlinsons, Rafal Wojcik, Pedro Texera, Kathy Reese, Brian Terry, Danny, Dennis Arnaud, Alexander Marius, Guy Jin, Bob Wilson, Adam Rabung, Andrew Douglas, Weller Tractor Salvage, Richard Jousey, Amira Sosnick, Mark Bradshaw, Jim Cummings, Michael Mason, Sidney Atwood, Christopher Wetmore, Willie Keplinger, Harry Plumley, John Mithot, Jose Enrique, Joe McFarland, Rachel Merritt, Nathan Hanna, Thomas All, Glenn McDavid, Nick McCann, Benjamin Turner, David Taschioni, Daniel Aitken, Radek Nesbida, Patrick Dennis, Chris Hilly, Joe Latone, DGE, John Seal, Fletch, Philip Radulovic, Nathan Heston, Braxton Thomason, Karen Garrison, and Zarko Opacic. Thanks everyone for your support, and I'll see you next time here on Starts with a Bang.